I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing U.S. engagement with China and how that approach towards China played out. Engagement with China in the 1990s was rooted in optimism. As the Cold War came to a close, Western powers shifted attention and strategic planning towards the Asia-Pacific. Western leaders believed that expanded investment and trade with China would bear economic benefits for both the United States, China, and the West, and that engagement would expose China to a liberal democratic order. Instead, the Chinese Communist Party remains in power in China, and under Xi Jinping, China has doubled down on the strength of its authoritarian system. Internationally, China has challenged the Western-led rules-based order and engaged in a more muscular Chinese foreign policy. How did China's relations with the West get to this stage? Where does engagement with China go from here? Joining me to discuss these questions is Dr. Aaron Friedberg, Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. From 2003 to 2005, Dr. Friedberg served as Deputy Assistant for National Security Affairs in the Office of the Vice President. In 2006, he was named to the Secretary of State's Advisory Committee on Democracy Promotion. Dr. Freeberg's most recent book, Getting China Wrong, explores the origins of engagement and presents new approaches for U.S. policy towards China. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So I'd like to start this conversation by gaining some background on uh, U.S.-China engagement, uh, since your book was about getting China wrong. So when we look at, look at U.S.-China engagement, particularly given the historical context, what did you see as the goal of our policy and what did you see as the main activities of our engagement? I think there really were two variants of, of engagement. The first one dates to the beginning of relations between the United States and the People's Republic, uh, the Nixon-Kissinger opening, and then the formalization of relations in 1979. And that really runs from about 20 years, from 1969 or so to 1989. And the principal goal there was to build up China as a counterweight to Soviet power. This was a period when people were convinced that the Soviet Union was on the rise and that the United States both and China both felt that they needed uh, the help of the other to try to counter Soviet power. So that was the goal. And basically, that's what we cared about. There was not much attention paid to Chinese domestic politics. In fact, Richard Nixon famously said to Mao when they first met, we don't care about the internal policies of your country. We only care about how you behave externally. And that was essentially the view. The second variant of engagement comes into, into view in the period in the early 1990s. So it's really the Tiananmen Square massacre of, of June 1989. And then it's followed in rapid succession by the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. And that really eliminated almost overnight the strategic rationale for the previous form of engagement. The Soviet Union wasn't there anymore. Why do we need to have this close relationship with China? And also Tiananmen in particular made it much harder to ignore the character of China's domestic regime. It drew attention back to it. So as I describe in the book a set of arguments, rationales emerged in the early 1990s that supported a policy of engagement, economic engagement, but also across all domains, educational, scientific, cultural, and so on. And that policy really had three objectives. 
The first was to draw China into the existing international system even more fully than it already had been. And by doing that, American and I think other Western policymakers believed that they would encourage China to see its interests as lying in supporting the existing international order rather than trying to change it or overthrow it. As people in the Bush administration later described it, that China would become a responsible stakeholder in the existing order. So that was the first goal. The second was to encourage China to move further down the path towards economic liberalization. And here, too, there was a belief that by integrating China even more fully into the global economy, the U.S., the West, would set in motion forces that would encourage tendencies towards economic liberalization that were believed already to be having some effect in China. So that eventually China would move away from a state-directed economic system towards one that really more closely resembled those of the Western advanced industrial democracies. It really depended on the market almost entirely to allocate scarce resources. And then the third goal was to promote political liberalization. And American political leaders talked about this more or less openly at different periods, but there were uh, there were a variety of underlying arguments and rationales. Basically, the belief was that trade, economic engagement would promote growth, that growth would give rise to a middle class, and that in China, as had happened in other parts of the world, in Europe in the 19th century, in Asia in the 20th century, the middle class would take the lead in pushing for liberalizing political reforms. It wasn't clear how long that would take, but I think the expectation was that it would happen and perhaps that it would happen sooner rather than later. So that was engagement 2.0. And that really was in place by the early 1990s. And it's persisted until very recently. And can I ask, as we were engaging either in um, engagement 1.0 or 2.0, how would you characterize the Chinese approach to engagement? What did China seek from this engagement? And did China gain more of what it saw from engaging with the U.S. than the United States did? Well, I think particularly once Mao is gone from the scene and Deng Xiaoping has emerged as, as China's leader, the approach of the CCP regime to engagement was wary but flexible. Deng famously said that, you know, when you open the windows, you get fresh air, but also flies. And uh, he was referring there to the uh, dangerous ideas of liberal democracy that he knew would accompany greater trade and investment. But he believed, and his successors believed too, that uh, the benefits of engagement were potentially enormous, that China could have access to capital, technology, knowledge, that it would be able to uh, sell its products into Western markets in ways that it had never done before, and that this would drive China's economic development. And that was really the key to Deng's strategy. At the same time, he and his successors also intended to maintain the C CCP's unshakable hold on domestic political power. So I think the CCP leadership had its own strategy, a counter strategy for dealing with our strategy and for fending off what it saw as the potentially dangerous effects of engagement. And there were three goals, I think, on the Chinese side as well. The first and most important was no matter what, preserve the CCP's monopoly of power. Second, build up all the elements of China's so-called comprehensive national power and economic strength first and foremost, but also technological capabilities, military capabilities, and so on. And then third, to advance 
carefully at first towards, I think, what were always the leadership's long-term strategic objectives. First, to reestablish China as the preponderant power in, in East Asia, Eastern Eurasia, a position which I think they believed was rightfully theirs historically and which for other reasons they wanted to achieve because it would mean reducing the presence and the danger posed by the United States and its allies. And then in the very long run, to reestablish China as one of, if not the most wealthy, powerful and influential states in the world. Uh, I think those were the goals. Initially, Deng Xiaoping famously said right before the Soviet collapse in summer 1991, we should hide our capabilities and bide our time. So we should be cautious and not push ourselves forward and build up our strength. And what we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years is China moving away from that strategy. But I think the goals have been consistent. The means have varied and have been flexible. Aaron, thank you so much for bearing with us and giving so much history as well as context. So now I want to go back to the present time, as well as sort of what motivated you to write this book. Was there a point in the last couple of years where you came up with or where you decided on the main thesis of your book and then you proceeded to write it? Or was there like a significant turning point that led you to produce the current book? I think the discussion that started, I guess, in during the Trump administration, 2018, the shift in the debate over China policy and I think the growing recognition that the previous policy hadn't worked and the acknowledgement of that fact on you know both sides of the political spectrum made me think about how we had gotten to be where we were at that point. And I think I, I went into it with the idea that I would write a book that was primarily about our side of the story. So why was it that people thought the things that they did? What did they think? How did they think they were going to achieve their objectives? But increasingly, as I, as I got into it, I got more and more interested in the question of why that didn't work. And it became clear to me that the answer didn't have to do exclusively or even primarily with us. It had a lot to do with them. In other words, it had a lot to do with, uh, with the Chinese side and the CCP. And so I became more interested in understanding the CCP strategy for countering our strategy. So it was uh, wound up, um, I wind up in trying to talk about both, but I started, I think, going in one direction and wound up looking at both sides of the equation. So as you look at both sides of the equation, particularly from the perspective of why it didn't work for China, what were the major ways in which you saw that U.S. engagement with China did not have the effect of shaping China in the way that we wanted it to go? I think if you if you go back to what I said a minute ago about these three rationales and three expectations and you can tick them off has China become a responsible stakeholder, a sort of satisfied status quo power. I don't think most people would believe that now. I think there's a recognition that China is a revisionist power. It wants to change important elements of the existing international system. So it wasn't successful in that regard. Did China move progressively down the path towards a full market driven liberal economic system? No, clearly not. Uh, in fact, in the last 10 or 15 years, it's really in many ways shifted back towards a much heavier reliance on state-directed, market-distorting, kind of mercantilist economic policies. And last but not least, did China liberalize politically? Obviously not. And I don't think that's exclusively the result of, of Xi Jinping's inclinations. I think the tendencies towards more repression, they were always there, but they they grew more intense uh, at the latter parts of Hu Jintao's rule. 
So the, the point where we've reached now, China's arguably more repressive than at any time since the Cultural Revolution, maybe at any time since, since the founding of the country. So by those three standards, uh, I think it's clear that the policy did not achieve its objectives. And I think by any reasonable definition of the word, it was a failure. So can I ask you to consider the counterfactual? So a lot of folks who've been looking at whether our policy or our engagement strategy with China worked or not have made the arguments that you have laid out, which is perhaps we were too optimistic in the goals that we tried to achieve with engagement. But could we argue the opposite, that if we didn't engage with China, would we see an even more extreme China than we see now? I just wanted your thoughts on this. Yes, I think this is kind of a straw man frankly, because it makes it seem that there was no choice between the policies we did pursue, which produced the results that we see now, which I think most people would agree are, if not entirely negative, have important negative elements to them. And on the other hand, some kind of unspecified total Cold War containment policy that was not realistic and was not on the cards. I think, in fact, there might have been alternatives in between those two. And my complaint, I guess, about the policy as it was pursued is not so much that we attempted this experiment, but that we stuck with it and kept investing more and more in it and didn't make adjustments to it, even as evidence began to accumulate that it wasn't it wasn't working. So I think we could have modulated our approach and we could have been more alert to the evidence of what was going on. Uh, instead, we we're kind of asleep at the switch with the result that we've gotten ourselves in a position where we now feel we have to scramble to defend our position and improve our capabilities and so on. I guess the answer, you know, to come back to the hypothetical. So having said that, it's not fair to ask that. Uh, it is interesting to speculate about probably China, a China that we had tried to contain and hadn't engaged and so on would arguably be even more hostile than the current CCP regime is to the West and the United States, although the current regime is pretty hostile, but it probably also would have been less powerful. It would have had less access, less opportunity to grow and develop uh, in the ways that it did as a result of engagement. That doesn't mean I think that was the policy we should have pursued, but the answer to the question of what would have happened is not obviously a situation that's worse than the one that we face now. So you mentioned that maybe one thing that we could have done better in the past is modulated our approach as we saw that engagement wasn't working. Is there a particular point of time as you go back in history where it became very obvious that we should have changed our approach, but you saw us continuing? Is it five years ago or or even further back in time? No, I think it's further back. And I don't know that there's one date that you can point to by which you you can say, or future historians might say, you know, at this point, everybody should have seen what was going on. I do think by the second term of the Obama administration, so, and that's by the time Xi Jinping comes to power, it should have been painfully obvious what was happening. But even then, there were people who thought she was going to be a reformer and we just had to sort of hold on and things would get better. I think by then the evidence was really overwhelming and it became even more so very quickly that this was not working. But really, I think there was there was evidence of the shift in China's economic policies going back several years before that under under Hu Jintao, the beginnings of this state directed techno nationalism really goes back to 2006, probably the persistence of China in doing things that it had 
promised not to do or that we had assumed it wouldn't do once it entered the World Trade Organization in 2001, like manipulating its currency, continuing to subsidize domestic industry, continuing to impose limitations on the access of U.S. and other Western companies. That's, that evidence was, was there and was building up from the turn of the century on. I think if you look at the, at the military domain, the concern really went back to the 1990s. There was evidence even then that China was developing military capabilities that were targeted on ours and were intended to make it more difficult for us to defend our allies and to support our alliance commitments. We would have focused more attention on that. We had started to do that around the turn of the century, but 9-11 intervened and really knocked us off course. As far as you know, China's domestic evolution, I think there, there was a tendency to perhaps misread some things that were going on, particularly in the early part of Hu Jintao's first term, that, and maybe the latter part of Jiang Zemin's as well, that it seems to me were experiments in co-optation. So recognizing that you couldn't simply satisfy people by making them better off in material terms. They had other concerns, corruption and pollution and, and so on. And also not wanting to go back to an even heavier hand and relying even more on repression. So for a while, I think the CCP experimented with allowing NGOs, non-governmental organizations to be act, permitting the training of lawyers, allowing people to express some views critical of the regime on the new and rapidly spreading Internet. But very quickly, it seems to me, the leadership came to the conclusion that this was dangerous and, and counterproductive. And it had partly to do with things happening inside China, also with things outside, the color revolutions and then the Arab Spring. So there was a period in which I think people in the West saw things happening and misunderstood them or interpreted them as evidence that China was evolving in this direction that we had hoped. But that was not what was happening. And it should have been clear pretty quickly that that was the case. You had mentioned earlier that the, the what, what you saw as the developments now of why engagement didn't work was did not rest on Xi Jinping. And you mentioned some of the experiments that happened under Hu Jintao and how that occurred during his first term. And it seems like what you're saying is by the second term, we were even seeing a shift in China's leadership position at the end of the Hu term. So these shifts didn't occur during the Xi term. Could you just unpack that a little bit more? Yes, I think they started under Hu Jintao and they accelerated considerably under Xi Jinping. So, you know, the shift towards greater assertiveness, as it was called initially, really follows the global financial crisis, 2008-2009, which leads, I think, to a, a recalibration on the part of Chinese strategists and, and renewed or increased optimism about the trajectory of China's power and relative to American power, which was seen as being in sort of accelerating decline. So the first signs of that are in 2010, when China begins to heat up its maritime disputes, first with Japan and then other countries around the, the South China Sea. So there's evidence uh, of, of that. The industrial policy, the emphasis on top-down drive to master technologies, I think also, I mentioned it began or it became apparent, I think, in perhaps 2006, but it also took off after the global financial crisis, more money pumped into technology development programs. And the repression, too, I think, begins around the same time. More dissidents being arrested, crackdowns on lawyers and NGOs and so on. But Hu Jintao was, I think, a rather cautious figure 
and probably was operating more on a consensus with his colleagues than Xi Jinping has been. I think she came along, and my belief is that he was chosen as someone who could deal more effectively with what the party saw as these accumulating and unresolved issues. Corruption. Hu Jintao had talked about stopping corruption, but really did, didn't do very much. And there had been this famous scandal with Bo Xilai in 2012, so corruption reaching to the very top of the party. So that contributes to this atmosphere of crisis. 2011, I mentioned the Arab Spring. So there's a kind of panicky sense that things are getting could get out of control. And then there's also the, the U.S. pivot under the Obama administration, which is announced in, in 2011. So a sense that the United States is starting perhaps to push back more vigorously. So there's a sense of, I think, of crisis. And I guess the last thing I should mention, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao had said explicitly, Wen Jiabao in particular, that the old, the existing economic model no longer worked, that it was unstable and, and needed to be refined and, and a new model had to be found. But by the time Hu Jintao leaves, leaves office, that had not been done. They were continuing to emphasize enormous investment in infrastructure, pushing exports and so on. So I think the leadership had a, a sense of urgency and crisis. And I believe that Xi Jinping was brought in because he was seen as someone who understood this and was going to take strong action to, to deal with it. And he did uh, in his own way. And most of it involved accelerating and intensifying things that had begun earlier. So, Aaron, I just wanted to go back to a point that you mentioned earlier. So you mentioned that as we look at China, that it's clear that China is a revisionist power. I was wondering if you could describe that a little bit more from your perspective. In what ways is China trying to revise international system? And in what ways is China different, if any, from Russia? Uh, well, those are two, two big and, and somewhat different questions. I guess on the first uh, about Chinese revisionism, I believe that it's evident both on the regional level and now increasingly on the global stage. Regionally, China is doing various things to to challenge the territorial status quo. That's true with regard to Taiwan, but that's not something new. But also the active pursuit of China's longstanding claims to be able to have the right to dominate the water and the resources and the land features of the South China Sea. That's been a major feature of, of Chinese policy in the last eight or nine years. And also an increasingly open critique of an attempt, I think, to weaken and undermine U.S. alliances and more or less explicit statements by the leadership that U.S. alliances are a, a thing of the past, a relic. And not only that, that they're contributing to instability and they have to go. Well, when that happens, who's going to be the dominant power in the region? Obviously, it's it's China. So I think the, uh, the revisionist uh, ambitions are very clear on the regional scale. I think they are becoming clearer on the global level. And I don't believe that they're fully in focus there. But the Chinese leadership has spoken about various elements of the existing international order being illegitimate and unfair and requiring revision. And it's not always clear what they mean, but it refers, I think, both to certain norms and institutions. And I think also, in addition to trying now to change those in various ways, the CCP leadership under Xi Jinping is also beginning the process of constructing a set of alternative institutions that may provide the uh, the framework, the skeleton, if you like, for a system 
in which China is the dominant power that includes large portions of Eurasia, Eastern Eurasia, certainly the continental side and parts of the maritime side, but also extends now into large parts of the global south. So trying to create a, a new uh, subsystem, if you like, that China will dominate. So I think they have revisionist aims. They're long-term goals, although the long-term is getting shorter as, as time goes by. And Xi Jinping has said, uh, we must achieve the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation by 2049. So the 100th anniversary of the country. And I think it's pretty clear that what he means by that is both reestablishing China as the dominant regional power and bringing it up to a position of at least parity with the United States as a global power. Russia, I think, by contrast, has uh, revisionist territorial ambitions around its periphery. And that's been clear for quite some time, although now under Putin, they're pursuing these in a more active and, and violent way. I think Russia wants to be regarded once again as an important global power, a position that in many people's eyes it lost when the Soviet Union collapsed. I don't think the Russian leadership has a, an alternative vision for what the international system should look like. I think their, their goals are more short term and have more to do with what goes on around their immediate periphery. So their goals are different. And at least thus far, they've proven to be more acceptant of risk and more willing to use force and behave in a very aggressive way that, at least for the moment, the Chinese leadership has not. Now, one of the reasons for the difference may be that, at least until recently and maybe still, uh, the CCP leadership had reason to believe that time was on its side. If you believe that you are growing stronger and you'll be stronger tomorrow than you were today and that your opponents are growing weaker, then why take the risk of putting that to the test in the short term? It's when you're not sure about that or when you think perhaps the trends have turned and you're no longer on that upward trajectory that you may be more willing to take chances and to use force. And that, I think, explains Russia's behavior. And But for the moment, at least, the CCP, China under Xi Jinping is different. Yeah, thank you for um, entertaining the comparison between China and Russia. I, I asked the Russia comparison because when you use the term revisionist, people easily lump China with Russia. So they wanted to get a sense of how you differentiate between the yes. two. Yes. Could I say also there, there is something I should have mentioned, and that is both China and Russia, both the current leaderships of those two countries, see themselves, believe themselves to be threatened by this preponderance of American power, American material power and Western power with the United States behind it, and also by the prevalence of what the Chinese leadership now refers to as so-called universal values. So we keep talking about the liberal international order and isn't it great and everybody wants to be a member. Well, the liberal part refers to principles which are inimical to the Russian and Chinese regimes. So they see those things as threatening and they want to weaken that at a minimum, delegitimize it, prevent it from undermining and weakening their regimes. So, Aaron, when you were talking about the difference between the Chinese and Russian approach, you mentioned that right now, at least CC, the CCP believe that time is on its side. But you, as you were talking about that, you, there seems to be some hesitation in your statement. Could you explain, do you think that's changing right now? It could be, you know, at the level of official doctrine. The CCP always has to uh, say that it believes that time is on its side because it's with the, you know, the forces of history. There's this sort of 
Marxoid quality to their thinking still, even though I don't think they're really very Marxist, that the forces of history, the material forces are carrying them inevitably to victory. So they can't come out and say, you know, maybe we're going to lose this thing. I think overall, maybe in the last decade, maybe more, they've been worried about the short to medium term and optimistic about the long term. They always see the problems and the challenges that are posed to them by things that are happening, by things that we're doing and so on. But they've been confident that in the long run, they would they would win out. They talk as if they still believe that. So Xi Jinping says, you know, the, the West is declining particularly the United States, and the East is rising, particularly China. And the leadership talks a lot about the, you know, the decadence and corruption and inefficiency of liberal democracy, and it's sort of a spent force, whereas China now is, has a superior model. I think we have to take them at their word. I think they, they do believe that that's the case. I guess the question, the thing I'm not so sure about is whether they might now see a window closing in part because we are starting to respond, that we are putting aside the policies that we've been pursuing and from which they've benefited so much for the last 30 years and struggling to come up with an alternative which would be much less accommodating to them and would seek to resist what they're doing much more forcefully and effectively than we have resisted so far. They have to be worried about that. I think in part because they know that they're still vulnerable. I would say particularly on the economic front. They know that they're vulnerable. They're still heavily dependent on Western technology. They still have a need and a desire for Western capital. They still export a large portion of their total production to the United States and other democratic countries. And that means that we have leverage over them. And I think they're working hard to try to reduce that. So in a sense, they're not surprised that we've woken up. They expected it. They predicted it. As long ago as 2002, they had this notion of the 20-year period of strategic opportunity, which in retrospect, I think, refers to the growth that they expected when they entered the WTO, and it was even better than they had anticipated. And also something they didn't say explicitly at the time, the belief that the United States was going to be preoccupied with terrorism and counterinsurgency and so on for the better part of 20 years. And that turned out to be true. But I think... Chinese strategists have always had the view that eventually we would turn back to them and devote our energy to trying to oppose them, or as they would see it, to hold them down and contain them. They don't think that's because of anything they did wrong. They think it's because of their success and our fear and jealousy of their success. So the question is, do they feel like perhaps this has happened a little too soon? If they could have gotten, you know, to the 20 year mark, to 2022, before we started to wake up and change, instead of having it happen, maybe 2016, maybe it started to happen a little bit before then, perhaps they would be in better shape. And there, I don't know the answer. There, there are so many things that are changing. Recognition of slowing growth, the impact of COVID and COVID zero. As I said, the way in which the United States and other democracies are beginning to regard them and, and treat them differently. Do they think, might they think, that they have a dwindling opportunity to achieve some of their goals. I don't think they, at this point, that is the case, but it could be. So Aaron, uh, near the end of your book, you propose a new strategy for dealing with China. Uh, could you describe what is this new strategy? And then after that, I'd like to ask you to discuss 
uh, what elements of your new strategy or your recommended approach is currently being adopted by the Biden administration? Well, in the last chapter of the book, I talk about four elements or sort of lines of effort. And they're at a fairly high level of abstraction, I admit. I don't get into all the nitty gritty detail that's so important in describing what it is people should actually do. It's one of the advantages of being an academic. The first element is what I refer to as mobilization. I think leaders in democratic countries have to speak more frankly than they have in the past about the nature of the CCP regime, about the challenge or threat that it poses to the security, to the welfare, to the values of liberal democratic countries. We've started to do that. And in other places, too, opinion about China has started to shift. But we're still, I think, uncomfortable. We haven't found the right language for doing that. And there's a danger, of course, of excess. And that would be counterproductive. So mobilization is is key because unless you can get public buy-in and support, you're not going to be able to do the things, some of which are going to be costly, that I think will be necessary to counter this challenge. So that's number one. Number two is what I describe as counterbalancing. People say we can't contain China. And I agree, but I don't think that's the goal. I think the goal should be developing our own strength along with our friends and allies sufficiently to deter China from believing that it could use force or coercion to achieve its objectives. Uh, And that's an ongoing effort. China is getting much stronger. We have not done enough, I think, to keep pace. We and our allies need to do more. But that's number two. And that's a both a military and a diplomatic effort. The third is what I describe as partial disengagement. So I don't think we need to or can completely decouple our economy from China's. But I do think that we need to change and restructure many aspects of, of that relationship. And we're starting to do that now imposing some restrictions on the ability of Chinese companies to come and buy American companies in high-tech sectors, imposing some restrictions on the export of certain high-tech products to China. So we've started to do some of these things, and so have some of our friends and allies. It isn't just an American phenomenon. But we are still far too dependent on China for a variety of materials and products. And we saw this very starkly during the the peak of the COVID pandemic. I think that was one thing that really woke people up to this. There've been uh, a series of sort of shocks. One was that recognition that, you know, we didn't initially have uh, factories that could manufacture masks and we had to import all of these things from one place. Who, Who knew that? And also, of course, recognizing that you're reliant on a country that may be hostile and may try to extract benefits. Uh, They didn't do that so much to us, but they did that to many of our allies. And our allies didn't like it. It's one of the reasons why opinion has shifted against China in in both in Europe and in Asia. But we're also dependent on certain rare earth minerals that are essential to manufacturing electronics. We're dependent on some manufactured elements, components that go into other things that we manufacture. And that leaves us vulnerable. One of the weapons that the CCP regime has used with increasing openness, I I would say, is the threat of denial of access to its markets. And it's used that not just against small countries, but against big advanced industrial countries like South Korea and Australia. We can't be in that position with a country with whom we are competing strategically. We need to get out from under that. So that's the third, third piece. And that's the hardest. And the fourth is the CCP talks about waging discursive struggle 
which is sort of fancy postmodern language for ideological combat or a struggle of narratives where they have their story and we have our story and they're trying to propagate theirs and undermine and weaken ours. I think we need to engage in that more directly than we have, by which I mean we have to both have confidence in uh, and demonstrate the superiority of our liberal democratic institutions. We can't be on the back foot about that. And that's largely a matter of what we do, not just a matter of what we say. But I think we also have to be more candid and, and, and sharper in pointing to the flaws and failings of this authoritarian regime, the way in which it treats its ethnic minority population, the way in which it treats its own people and what it is that it's trying to offer, particularly in the developing world. I think we have to be blunter in, in critiquing that. And we're out of practice in this. And we're, I think, reluctant. People want to say, well, it's not an ideological struggle. But of course it is. And it certainly is from the CCP's perspective. CCP believes it's been in a cold war with the West since the last cold war ended. And they define it in ideological or regime type terms. And, you know, if the other party thinks uh, he's engaged in an ideological struggle with you, you're engaged in ideological struggle. It's just a question of whether you recognize it and whether you fight your corner. And I don't think we have done that adequately. So that's those four elements. If we were to embrace these four elements of your strategy, and, and as you look forward, where does your approach to China take us in terms of where China or the United States might be in 2050? What is, I don't want to say end state, because that's not really an end, but where right. do you envision both countries? Well, first, I should, I should give an answer to the question you asked before about the Biden administration. And, and how it fits or whether it's doing what I think it should be doing. I guess the short answer to that is I think they're pointed in the right direction, but they're not moving fast enough uh, across all of these dimensions. And for various reasons, they're having difficulty in making decisions about economic policy. They're constrained in what they're spending on, on our military. They haven't found the language, I don't think, for the discursive struggle part of things. Or they haven't gotten it right. But I think the general direction is is correct. And it really follows in, in large part, not entirely, the path that was initially set by the Trump administration. And people may not like to admit that, but I think it's, for the most part, it's true. And that's a good thing because it suggests to me there really is an emerging consensus with all the disagreements across all the issues that we have now between our main political parties. This does seem to be an issue where there's a a degree of consensus. As far as you know, where things are going, I agree with you. End state is not the right term because it implies the end of something. And history never ends, as we've learned. It goes on. I think of this more as something that's going to evolve in stages. In my view, you know, we've come to the recognition that China is not going to change in the ways that we had wanted, at least not in the near term, and certainly not as a result of our being nice and accommodating. So we have to figure out how to deal with that. It's an ugly regime that's pursuing policies that are hostile and threatening, and it is now very powerful, unlike what it was 30 or 40 years ago. And we're struggling to come to grips with that. What does that imply for our strategy? I think in the first instance, our goals have to be defensive. We really need to do more to deter aggression, to prepare to defend ourselves against aggression, but also to protect our societies and our economies from penetration and subversion. We've been very open both to China and to Russia, and both have exploited 
our openness to their advantage and to our disadvantage. So we need to uh, we need to be stronger on defense. I think I think of the objective of this in the kind of medium term as being to defeat uh, and blunt the thrust of the policies that the current CCP regime is now pursuing to demonstrate that they cannot achieve the objectives that they've set for themselves by pursuing the policies that they're currently pursuing. I think if we can do that, we probably are looking towards a period of stalemate in which they are not pushing us back, but they're continuing to try and we are pushing back and the two are balancing out to some degree. That may go on for some time. And then the question is what might happen further down the road. And I guess, you know, the hope would be that if we can demonstrate the failure of these policies that they're pursuing, at some point, there might be a willingness on the part of perhaps a new generation of leaders to re-examine the policies that are currently being pursued. I don't think there's much chance it's going to happen, certainly not while Xi Jinping is in power, but I think it's, it's conceivable that that could happen. And that's what we have to hope for. And, you know, the Biden administration is sort of saying that when they say we can't change them, but we can affect the environment around them. And they're being a little too diplomatic. Maybe they don't think of it in this way, but I interpret that to mean we need to block what they're trying to do. We need to blunt it and defeat it in the first instance. I guess the last thing I would say is, and I I say this in the book, I don't think we should foreclose the possibility or cease to discuss the possibility that at some point China might change in fundamental ways and might become more democratic and, and more liberal. It's not within our power to make that happen. It was arrogant of us, I think, to think that we could, even in the nice way that we were trying to do it. And we certainly not shouldn't be in the business of trying to subvert the regime or anything like that. But I don't think the objective of the initial policy of engagement was was wrong or the hope that China could be encouraged to liberalize was a bad idea. It's just that we didn't have the means to accomplish that. But I don't think we should just say, well, it's it's too bad. The people of China are going to have to live forever under this oppressive regime, and it's their problem. I think we have to continue to say that we believe that liberal democracy is the best form of government for people everywhere. It has many different variants, and that we think the Chinese people would be better off and the world would be better off if China were eventually to become more democratic. I don't think we should be shy about saying that. And that may take quite a while, uh, but perhaps it's still possible. Thank you. So in the interest of time, we'll probably need to wrap this up relatively shortly. But I did want to ask you one question. So it seems to me that as you're talking about getting China wrong, as well as what was off with our policy of, of engagement with China, you're not saying that we shouldn't have political dialogue with China. You're not saying like in terms of our actual day-to-day management of affairs with China, we shouldn't we should engage in dialogue, high-level meetings or whatnot. I, I did want to ask you then, as you look at how the Biden administration is currently managing the relationship with China, what do you do you think we should be doing more in terms of the actual political dialogue with China? So how do you how do you balance the sort of the the competitive side with the actual talking to the Chinese? Well, in theory, it should be possible to do both simultaneously. You know, the uh, CCP has a term to you know talk while fighting, so uh, which I believe refers to the Korean War. But while we're not fighting, we are competing and more vigorously than before. Uh, it shouldn't be impossible for us to talk. 
I think the difficulty is that we in the West, in the United States, maybe reflecting our liberal values and inclinations, have been under the mistaken impression that by talking, we could resolve fundamental differences. And we've invested a lot of energy over the years in high-level dialogues and the SNED, and I can't even remember all the names of them. They didn't have any impact on the trajectory that China was following. And in fact, I think it's probably the case that from the CCP's perspective, this was a way to keep us sort of tied up in knots and focused on the next meeting and what was going to be the statement that we were going to make and so on while they continued to do what they were doing to prepare themselves to challenge us more directly. So I think we have a we have a weakness for this and we need to be more realistic about it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't talk or can't talk. That would be dangerous if we were unable to do that. But our expectations should be low and we shouldn't place so much emphasis on, you know, are we going to have this meeting or are we not? Did this phone call take place or did it not? Because every time that happens, you see in the way people talk about it, at least in in the media, this kind of expectation that now something's going to change. But it's not going to change the fundamentals. Those are much, much more deeply rooted. But still, it's important to talk. And especially if there are crises, it's important to be able to express where we're headed and what our objectives are. Just as one example from you know, the last few months, I do think it was important for the Biden administration, of high-level officials in the administration, to convey to their Chinese counterparts how serious we were about the sanctions that we had imposed on Russia. And you know, they say we were delivering a threat, and we were warning the Chinese leadership that if they did violate sanctions in a very explicit and open way, we would have no choice but to impose secondary sanctions on them. I think that reduced the possibility of misperception, because it's always possible that uh, the leadership might not have really believed we were going to do it, and then they would do something and we would have to respond. So there's an example where, I don't know if it's dialogue exactly, but it's communication, and it's important, and we shouldn't forego it. Well, thank you very much, Aaron, for this very fascinating and rich discussion. Thank you. Thank you. 